0: This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
1: And I'm Margaret Flint. Well,
0: Margaret, here we are in the dog days of summer. Congress is off on their summer recess. It's also time that campaigns kick into high gear leading up to the midterm elections.
1: Well, it is kind of hard to imagine what platform some members of Congress are campaigning on, Mark. It's been deemed by the Pew Trust as the least productive Congress since 1948. And even then, they managed to pass more legislation.
0: True to form, Margaret, instead of passing immigration legislation or any other essential legislation before breaking for summer recess, the House Republicans only managed to agree on one thing besides increasing funds to help the overhaul of the Veterans Health Administration, and that is to sue the president for delaying the small business mandate in the health care law for one year.
1: Well, it's not entirely certain whether this latest congressional attempt at undermining the health care law is going to work for the Mark. According to a number of political strategists, the Affordable Care Act is kind of ceasing to be the hot button issue for the American people that it was in 2010. I- think, frankly, it's just working for so many millions of Americans already. The efforts to undermine the law could, in fact, backfire on those who try to use opposition to the law as leverage in their campaign.
0: But the law is running the gauntlet of the number of legal challenges, Margaret, including recent lower court rulings that issued diametrically opposed decisions on the legality of the tax structure to underwrite purchases of health insurance on the exchange. It's a measure that will likely put the health care law right back in front of the Supreme Court when they reopen for business in the fall. The issue is something, our guest today knows quite intimately.
1: Health economist and MIT professor Jonathan Gruber has been analyzing health policy and modeling health reform strategies for decades. He helped create the Massachusetts Health Reform Law that led to near-universal coverage in that state, and he was a key architect of the Affordable Care Act. He's got some unique insights into these recent court rulings, and he has a long view on where he thinks health reform is headed into the future.
0: As we look at some of these congressional actions and court rulings, it's important to go back to understanding the original intent of the law, which is to make health insurance accessible and affordable for all Americans and to strive for what near universal coverage can mean for the nation's health. And that's improved population health over time.
1: And Lori Robertson checks in, as she does every week. She's the managing editor of factcheck.org and always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health reform in the public domain. But
0: no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And if you have comments, please email us at info at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Jonathan Gruber in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news.
2: I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The march of the Ebola epidemic has brought awareness of the crisis closer to our backyard. Two Americans working in Sierra Leone and other areas where the epidemic has spread had been doing extremely poorly after contracting the disease until they were given an experimental drug and showed almost immediate dramatic improvement from the deadly virus. Already responsible for some 900 deaths across several countries in sub-Saharan Africa, health workers on the ground are having an extremely difficult time with containment of the illness because incubation is generally a week to 10 days, and health officials are not able to keep family members and communities adequately isolated. The experimental drug made from a tobacco derivative hasn't been tested for efficacy in humans until now. Meanwhile, another global health threat to report a treatment-resistant strain of malaria has been spreading across parts of Southeast Asia. Health insurance and the Affordable Care Act. Florida is one of the states that chose not to expand Medicaid coverage for more of its uninsured population, living near the poverty line, about a million still uninsured in the Sunshine State. Neither did the state set up a state-based insurance exchange, which would have facilitated state residents seeking insurance plans online under the Affordable Care Act. Proposed insurance rates are coming out for 2015 for Floridians seeking to purchase insurance on the open individual market, and rates are predicted to go up more than 13 percent next year. While Floridians who purchase coverage through the federal exchange not only qualified for subsidies, their insurance rates aren't expected to increase more than 3 percent in the same year. Former Governor Crist is running on the platform. The state should not turn down billions of dollars being offered the state to cover the cost of Medicaid expansion, which would lead to hundreds of thousands of currently uninsured Floridians gaining coverage. In a world of rising obesity, is it the sloths or the gluttons leading to that increase? According to a recent finding in the global burden of disease, America leads the world in obesity rates with about 50% of the population either overweight or obese. But are we fatter because we're eating more or because we're more sedentary? Well, according to a recent study, it was noted Americans aren't really eating that much more, but we are far more sedentary across all demographic groups. One of the biggest surprises was men and women between the ages of 18 and 39. The number of white and African-American women getting no activity more than tripled, and that number almost doubled for Mexican-American women. Back in the 1980s, up to 90% of people reported doing at least some physical activity in their leisure time. Now, up to half Americans say they're not active at all. Bottom line, while gluttony and sloth are two deadly sins, the sloths seem to be winning in this race across the weight gain line. Experts estimate only 1 in 10 Americans actually move during their workday, sitting in cubicles for most of that time in front of a computer, and that time must be made either before or after work to get that 30 minutes a day recommended by federal guidelines. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these health headlines.
0: We're speaking today with Dr. Jonathan Gruber, professor of economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he's taught since 1992. He's also director of Healthcare programs at the National Bureau of Economic Research, one of the key architects of the Massachusetts health reform legislation. Dr. Gruber also advised the Obama administration on the creation of the Affordable Care Act and has advised several previous presidents on health policy. He has published over 140 research articles and has written several books on the economics of health care, including the popular graphic novel Healthcare Reform what it is, why it's necessary, and how it works. Dr. Gruber is a member of the Institute of Medicine and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and was voted one of the 25 most innovative and practical thinkers of our time by Slate Magazine. Dr. Gruber, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. Good to be here. Yeah, Jonathan, it's been uh, a number of years since you've been on, and we've watched the rollout of the Affordable Care Act unfold over time. Uh, It's fair to say it's been a bumpy road. I sort of like to think about it It, in that uh, old Timex ad, it takes a licking but keeps on ticking. Um, (laughs) And uh, with the Supreme Court's decision upholding the legality of the health care law, numerous legal challenges also continue to be waged against it. And you recently found yourself at the center of one of those decisions, the D.C. Circuit Court ruling on a literal interpretation of the wording in the health care law that says residents in states who don't create their own exchanges, and there are about 36 of those uh, who purchase insurance on the federal exchange, cannot take advantage of the tax subsidy to offset purchase of health insurance. So Tell us, illuminate our audience of why this wording there was so important in the case, and uh, were you quoted accurately in the filings? Yes.
3: Yeah, so the short version is that you have to remember when the health care law passed, um, the plan was always to go to conference to resolve the differences between the House that wanted a national exchange and the Senate that wanted state exchanges. Unfortunately, after Scott Brown got elected, there weren't enough votes in the Senate to uh, to pass the bill out of conference. So they essentially had to sort of patch together a version of the Senate bill that could be acceptable to both houses. And since that was sort of a rough process, there ended up being some, essentially, typos in the bill, things which just weren't cleaned up. And one of those things was, despite the fact the bill said that exchanges could be run either by the states or the federal government, one piece of the bill says that subsidies shall be available on state exchanges. Now, that same piece references another piece of the bill, which says, but there's also a federal backstop to state exchanges. So the best parallel I've heard is it's kind of like saying, look, um, you want to order pizza from Domino's and you wanted pepperoni. And then we said, but by the way, um, we'd also accept pizza from Pizza Hut. But we didn't explicitly say, and, we'd ex- and we want pepperoni. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty simple to understand that, gee, if you wanted pepperoni from Domino's, you wanted pepperoni from Pizza Hut, too. <laughs> and unfortunately, it wasn't spelled out explicitly, that sort of typo, has become the basis for a lawsuit against the law. Now, no one who worked on the law and wrote the law has ever said they intended the law to work this way. Mm -hmm. That was never the intention of the law, to only make subsidies available to those state exchanges. In fact, it would be stupid to write a law to set up these federal exchange backstops and not have subsidies available. Uh, If you did so, then literally the exchanges would collapse in all those federally run states. So it makes no sense. Nonetheless, because this typo in the law exists, this lawsuit's gone forward.
1: Jonathan, every time I hear one of these stories, I, I remi- I'm reminded that I think it's just amazing we actually have the Affordable Care Act in action. Yeah, I know. Enrolling is. people. But we do, um, you know, this is sort of the, the topical issue at the moment. Um, so I'd like to talk a little more about the potential threat that the ruling poses to the health care law, given how many states did not opt to do uh, a state exchange. Some analysts have called it the most serious legal challenge yet. Well, we've heard other serious legal challenges to the integrity of the Affordable Care Act. And the U.S. District Court in Virginia delivered the diametrically opposed ruling to the D.C. Circuit Court decision. So still fluid and unresolved uh, this is clearly an example of language that could be construed as contradictory to the intent of the laws you've just described. But what do you anticipate will happen next in regards to this latest brouhaha?
3: Well, I mean, in terms of seriousness, on the one hand, it's less serious than the mandate case because it's it's sillier. It really sort of makes no sense as a lawsuit. There's really no coherent legal theory here, in my view. On the other hand, if it could manage to make the way of the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided to to essentially ignore the intent of the law and interpret this literal language, that would be a serious threat. Basically, in the roughly 35 states that Mm -hmm. have federal exchanges, you would end up with essentially health insurance being unaffordable for on the order of 85% of the people who are buying through the exchanges now. That would mean they wouldn't buy. That would mean the exchanges would collapse. Mm -hmm. And essentially, the Affordable Care Act would not work in the states that did not have state-run exchanges. Now, what's true is a number of those states would quickly figure out a way around that. Those states would do things like have the federal government administer something they call the state-run exchange. Mm -hmm. So for the blue states, I think it would just be a hassle, not deadly. But the red states, the ones that have already refused to expand Medicaid, presumably would greet it with glee and presumably deny even more of their citizens the right to health insurance.
0: You know, I want to uh, get back to the issue of the exchanges. On the whole, people started as the uh, program uh, matured uh, they got a little better at it. What's your assessment of current state of online uh, insurance exchanges uh, nationwide as well as the federal exchange and do you expect any improvements uh, to be rolled out as we get near the open enrollment
3: yeah it's very interesting. I mean if you look at the state exchanges, there were both models that worked much better than the federal model, like mm-hmm. California, Kentucky, and models that worked a lot worse, like uh, Oregon and Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I think the front end of the federal exchange, that is, the consumer piece, is working great. Uh, they solved those problems pretty quickly, actually, and it's working fine. I think there's some, still some back-end issues about interacting with insurers that are still going to need to be worked out. Uh, this is a pretty complicated process, and you're not going to get it right the first time, probably even the second time. You've got to work these issues out. So I think round two will go better than round one, but I imagine there'll still be some glitches. And, like, the big issue is you're in a situation where opponents of the law Give no weight to the victories right. and play up all the glitches. So yes, there will be glitches, things will go wrong. But what's important for your listeners, for people who want to actually be objective evaluators of the law, is to look at the big picture and say, on average, how it's working. The, the difficulty for supporters of the law is what opponents do is immediately when one of their arguments is proven wrong, they just pivot to another one without admitting the argument was wrong. You know, we heard all through the fall the exchanges are collapsing, they're collapsing. Right. Well, they didn't. They work fine. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just a matter of really setting the tone and explaining to people that, you know, overall it's doing well, even if there are some remaining glitches.
1: Well, it is one of the fascinating issues of our time in terms of how people feel uh, about it. I think a recent Commonwealth report showed 81 percent of Americans who gained coverage under the Affordable Care Act are optimistic that their coverage will be satisfactory moving forward. And. of Republicans polled felt that they got a good deal. Of course, the subsidies are a big part of that because they helped defray the cost of purchasing insurance. And the other happy group uh, seems to be the insurance companies, which I know early on uh, you were making the point that the insurance companies should benefit from this. It's a boon to their uh, business. So it would seem the law worked pretty much the way it was intended so far. When you look back now on that first open enrollment period, what, what were the big successes of that first open enrollment and where did it fall short in your estimation?
3: It is working as expected, but it's fundamentally it's working the way it was supposed to. The basic three legged stool of fixing insurance markets, mandating coverage and subsidizing coverage are working well. I think the big thing we just didn't anticipate I think what I really missed, I think a number of analysts missed, is how central the actual administration of the exchanges was to making this law work well. Mm-hmm. I think we all mm-hmm. just sort of paid attention to the policy details and didn't pay enough attention making the trains run on time. Mm. And I think we, we learned that lesson. We got burned in the fall, and it led to a lot of bad press for the law. Um, what's good is that problem got fixed pretty quickly at the federal level, and a little more slowly but still being fixed at the state level, and I think that's the main lesson we've learned. Going forward, I think there's going to be a lot more focus on making sure, the uh, understanding that the administration of this stuff really matters and it's not just the policy that matters.
0: We're speaking today with Dr. Jonathan Gruber, professor of economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's one of the key architects of the 2006 Massachusetts health reform legislation under then-Governor Romney and advised Obama administration on the creation of the Affordable Care Act. Jonathan, let's take a, a look at Massachusetts. You know, we had the governor on uh, a little while ago, and he was talking about they were moving into the second phase, thinking about payment reform, cost control. Uh, The first goal of the law was to gain coverage for the citizens to help eliminate health disparities in Massachusetts. How's the reform impacted population health in Massachusetts? And then also maybe pull the thread a little on uh, their next phase as they start to think about payment reform.
3: You know, you laid out very clearly. I mean, we really fundamentally have two problems with the healthcare system. The first is, is an access problem. The second is a cost problem. You know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, well, also we have an outcomes problem. You know, our outcomes are terrible. But actually, if you look at the data, our outcomes for people who are in the system are quite good. Mm-hmm. The, the outcomes problem is really just a manifestation of the access problem. And we saw that in Massachusetts. There was a terrific study that was done which showed that mortality rates fell considerably. Mm-hmm among the groups that benefit from the Massachusetts health care reform. Indeed, it looks like we saved about 320 lives a year for expanding health care, and that is because of uh, expanding health insurance coverage. So I think the population health effects have been positive. I think that reflects the fact that, remember, this law is not about ripping up the system and starting over. It's mm-hmm. about fixing the cracks in the existing system. And basically what that says is we did manage to do that. For those populations that were really most subject to medical risk, we went in and helped them. We help them financially as well by making health insurance affordable. And now it sets the stage for moving on to the next phase, which is actually thinking about cost control. Now, in one sense, we've already started. In fact, cost growth over the last four years has been the slowest it's been since we started recording health care cost growth. Uh, Whether that will last, I think, is still an open question. But I think we need to move on and, uh, and take on that next battle. But you can't do it until you get everyone in the system, and I think we've
1: done that. Well, I know the reports on reduced rates of smoking and smoking-related illness and earlier detection of cancers has been very impressive coming out of Massachusetts. And we applaud that. Um, but maybe you could share with us a little more about the the cost containment issue. I know that's been elusive in Massachusetts. And everyone was very clear, you know, the first goal was to get the plan up and running and then think about the cost uh, containment a little bit down the line. But you have had some legislative efforts at cost containment. Maybe tell us how that is going, because I think we do look to Massachusetts a little bit as the first state down the path of this universal health care
3: Yes, let's not lose track of the fact that there was a huge victory on coverage, and that's great. Absolutely. And then we pivot to the next challenge, which is cost control. Now, the original Massachusetts law did nothing for cost control. Mm -hmm. Uh, Costs grew at exactly the same rate Mm -hmm. as the nation. But the original law wasn't trying to do cost control. I mean, I sort of say criticizing the Massachusetts law for not controlling costs is like criticizing the Red Sox for not winning the Super Bowl. It's not what they were trying to do. They won the World Series. That was great. Uh, now, if we, if we think about cost control, that's a much, to be honest, that's a much, much harder goal. We've struggled with it for a long time. Massachusetts did pass a somewhat aggressive cost control law. Um, costs have grown slowly in the state, although, once again, I think not appreciably slower than the nation as a whole. I think it's really going to be a question. It's going to be a much longer-run question to evaluate. And when, I think, when it comes to cost control, we need to be humble and we need to be patient. We need to be humble and recognize that we don't quite know exactly what to do to control health care costs. And patient in saying that we're
0: going to learn, but it's going to take time.
3: You know, unfortunately, humble and patient are not two words you'd use to describe politicians. Right. <laughs> so it's going to be a much more difficult process politically.
0: You know, trying to uh, describe the public's mood, you know, there's opinion and there's judgment. And I wonder where you think uh, we are in terms of the general citizens. We see at least the, the polls. And that's, I would suggest, his opinion. People who've gotten insurance through the exchange are happy. The national view seems to be a little less rosy. The recent uh, Kaiser Family Foundation poll showed a majority of Americans have a negative view of the healthcare law. However, 60 percent say it shouldn't be repealed. And We have the Supreme Court's Hobby Lobby decision allowing corporations right. to avoid... Uh, certain birth controls. They've thrown quite a bit of confusion in the mix. And of course, the House Republicans have a burnt earth strategy, uh, have voted uh, to sue the president, voted to obviously over, uh, overrule the ACA numerous times. How do you see the health care law surviving intact, this incredible gauntlet from opinion to, to the tactical strategy that a number of uh, legal advocacy groups on the right have taken what's your what's your view going forward
3: well i think the battle's already won uh the health care law is going to survive mm-hmm. and they, that, that's why the 2012 election was so important you know opponents do that with their last chance to stop it now let's look at what survive means there is a worst case scenario the worst case scenario is that it survives intact in only the blue states mm-hmm. the worst case scenario is that this Lawsuit somehow, despite any logic, persuades the Supreme Court, um, and uh, and the red states decide they don't want any part of the loss uh, of the healthcare law. Now that would still be enormous victory for the country, but an enormous loss for the citizens of Texas and Louisiana and other states. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the worst case scenario. You know, the best case. You know, I, I think the expected scenario is this lawsuit gets seen for the sham that it is, um, and that basically uh, the law survives, and that slowly over time, as people benefit from it and the national attention pivots to other topics, uh, it slowly gains acceptance. But I think, you know, a, a, as he said, um, the, the, it, what's striking this month is even if the law, law has been successful, a public opinion's gotten worse about it. I, I think what that reflects is the fact that, as I said, most Americans are not affected by this right. law.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And so it really becomes what most Americans read and see. And if you go into a typical hotel lobby in America, Fox News is on Mm-hmm. And that's what people are exposed to. And Fox News says it's a failure. So people say it's a failure. But, in fact, it's not. It's just a question of um, as people get to know more and more people who have benefited from it, as you say, polls show the people who benefit from it, love it, uh, hopefully those opinions will swing.
0: Weren't you surprised, though, that um, given the health care lobby, even in the red states, that we haven't had more traction in, you know, maybe not Texas, but uh, Pennsylvania or some other th- these states, where the healthcare uh, industrial complex, if you will, uh, uh, hasn't really squeezed out uh, uh, the uh, state government to move into the Medicaid program, or, you know, I'm
3: I'm I, I'm really surprised. Yeah, I um, I'm surprised as someone who studies public policy, and mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, I, as a healthcare expert, I'm quite frankly surprised as a student of political economy. Yeah, I mean, when the right. Supreme Court decision happened. Uh, you know, basically the reaction from the left was sort of a meh. Like, don't worry about it. The states will expand Medicaid. Why wouldn't they? Right. Uh, I think the fact that so many states have managed to essentially fool their citizens into not understanding what a good deal this is for the state is sort of amazing. Yes. Um, and uh, frustrating.
1: Yeah, I thought one of the rules of behavior was you don't vote against your own economic best interests. <laughs> well, in I, mean, I mean, look,
3: it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's <laughs> that really... That didn't hold up. If you think about it, you take the state of Florida. There are one million uninsured people on the poverty line. Right. So by turning down this expansion, what the state of Florida is saying, let's be explicit. What they're saying is we are going to turn down the opportunity for the federal government to pay to help a million citizens, at the same time injecting billions of dollars into our state economy. I mean, literally, no one's worse off in Florida. No one. The, The lowest income people get free health insurance. The higher income people get the benefits of the stimulus for their state. It, it just, it's sort of like you said, it sort of rejects any model I could write down of how people should vote. It's really uh, as frustrating as an academic as it is as a public policy advocate.
1: We've been speaking today with Dr. Jonathan Gruber, economist and professor at MIT and co-architect of the Massachusetts Health Reform, as well as the Affordable Care Act. You can learn more about his work by going to economics.mit.edu slash faculty slash Gruber. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming back on Conversations on Health Care today.
3: You bet. My pleasure.
4: Well, we continue to see Democrats and Republicans attack each other over the Affordable Care Act and Medicare. For instance, in the Montana Senate race, an ad from the Republican candidate, Steve Daines, features a 67-year-old breast cancer survivor who says the ACA puts her Medicare at risk. Meanwhile, an ad from the Democratic candidate, Senator John Walsh, features a senior woman claiming that Danes voted to cut Medicare benefits. We're seeing similar misleading Medicare claims in races across the country. First, the Republican ad. The claim about the breast cancer survivor's Medicare being at risk is based on the tired attack that Democrats cut more than $700 billion from Medicare to pay for Obamacare. The Affordable Care Act doesn't slash $700 billion from the current Medicare budget. Instead, this is a cut in the future growth of spending over a decade, and the slower rate of growth, which applies to payments made to hospitals and other non-physician providers, extends the solvency of the program. It remains to be seen whether this would translate into reduced services. In terms of breast cancer, however, the ACA expanded benefits for mammograms, covering them fully without cost-sharing for Medicare beneficiaries on a yearly basis. Now the Democratic ad, it features three senior women, one of whom says that Representative Daines voted to cut Medicare benefits, a reference to Daines's vote for Representative Paul Ryan's budget plan. Ryan's proposal for Medicare would nix the ACA's free preventive care, including cancer screenings and flu shots, and it would get rid of the law's closing of the prescription drug donut hole but relatively few seniors have drug costs high enough to put them in that coverage gap. So far, roughly 16% of Medicare beneficiaries have saved money on prescriptions thanks to the ACA's expanded benefits.
1: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Tens of millions of people around the world have conditions that make it impossible for them to speak on their own requiring them to adopt a computerized voice box for communicating. Perhaps the most well-known of these folks is the physicist Stephen Hawking.
5: I would have thought it was fairly obvious what I meant.
1: The problem is, that sound of Hawking speaking through his voice box is the same voice sound, say, that a 10-year-old girl with a neurologic disorder might be forced to use as well, because there just haven't been many voice options on the market.
5: In the U.S. alone, there are 2.5 million Americans who are unable to speak, and many of whom use computerized devices to communicate. That's millions of people worldwide who are using generic voices, including Professor Hawking, who uses an American-accented voice.
1: At a recent TED Talk, speech researcher and innovator Dr. Rupal Patel shared a program she has launched that can change that reality, Vocal ID. I thought there had
5: to be a way to reverse engineer a voice from whatever little was left over. So we decided to do exactly that. We set out to create custom-crafted voices that captured their unique vocal identities.
1: Creating a voice bank of donor voices that will allow voices to be individualized for each unique patient seeking to communicate through an electronic voice box, melding a donated voice with the footprint of whatever natural sounds the person is able to make.
5: Why don't we take the source from the person we want the voice to sound like? Because it's preserved and borrow the filter from someone about the same age and size, because they can articulate speech, and then mix them. Because when we mix them, we can get a voice that's as clear as our surrogate talker, that's the person we borrowed the filter from, and is as similar in identity to our target talker. It's that simple.
1: Since this popular TED Talk in February, 16,000 people have signed up to be voice donors at the Human Voice Bank Initiative, So volunteers, like this little girl, will read a series of simple phrases over a several-hour period. Things happen in pairs.
5: I love to sleep. The sky is blue without clouds.
1: And then those phrases are matched with the voice footprint of the patient being provided for. This voice is only for me. I can't wait to use my new voice with my friends. Such speech synthesis will give that person the dignity of a speaking voice that is as closely matched to their own identity as possible.
5: They say that giving blood can save lives. Giving your voice can change
1: lives. To take that dream from the lab into the real world, Dr. Patel, who's a professor of computer engineering at Northeastern University, has launched the website vocalid.com.
5: I imagine a whole world of surrogate donors from all walks of life, different sizes, different ages, coming together to give people voices that are as colorful, as their personalities.
1: And with the bank of voice donors now building around the world, Dr. Patel expects that patients with conditions ranging from muscular dystrophy to Lou Gehrig's disease or stroke will, one day, be given the chance to communicate in a voice made just for them. The Human Voice Bank Initiative, matching vocal donors with millions of people who seek to authentically communicate with friends and family in a voice that most closely matches what would be their own, now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter.
0: And
2: I'm Mark Maselli.
0: Peace and health.
2: Conversations on Healthcare, broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University. Streaming live at WESUFM.org and brought to you by the Community Health Center.